Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, billionaires in space. Canada is opening its border to the U.S., but they're not opening it to us. How come? We can smell wildfires in southern Ontario. Why? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Eileen Thompson, Scott's wife. Kurt's at Canada's Wonderland today. Alicia's working. Not only is that a good sign, considering what we've been through, it gets them out of our hair for the day. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I think everybody is now uh, fully qualified to uh, take over the gig. Uh, I honestly thought Alicia was upstairs sleeping in her bed, but apparently she got up early and went to work. Good for her. Hey, isn't this a sign that uh, we're getting towards the end of this uh, global pandemic? Uh, great to hear. Good afternoon, 1210. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show. Will Erskine back at the station. Keep it the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Uh, lots going on, and uh, we will get into it uh, throughout the course of the show. In regard to the border, uh, wildfires, do you smell the smoke uh i noticed this over the weekend uh yep our own situation here in ontario we'll talk talk about that coming up a little later on but uh in case you uh, didn't notice uh jeff bezos has launched into space aboard blue origins new shepherd rocket along with his brother uh, an 18 year old uh, 18, uh, 18 year old from the netherlands and 82 year old wally funk who was one of the 13 female pilots who went through the same testing as nasa's mercury astronauts back in the early 60s paul delaney is with us now professor of astronomy york university Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I certainly am, Scott. Glad to be with you. So how are you feeling today? Uh, it's, is this any different from the Virgin flight? Uh, similar but different. Uh, both of them represent big steps forward as far as commercial space flight and the ability to take you and me into Earth orbit if we had the disposable income. Uh, it was, I, I guess, a little more exciting today because it looked more like a rocket launch rather than an aircraft taking off. But both days have left me feeling this is great. <laughs> really, really great. All right. Just uh, very briefly, compare these two crafts, uh, the one from Virgin and the one that we saw go up today. So Virgin Galactic's VSS Unity that flew on uh, July 11th really had uh, an aircraft glider type feel to it. It took off from a runway. Uh, it was dropped in the atmosphere, it rocketed it into uh, low Earth orbit, and then it came back like a glider. So it really had an aircraft type of feel. Uh, the whole thing was about an hour 15 to an hour 30. Today's flight was much shorter. It was only 11 minutes, and it was literally a rocket launch. I mean, you saw New Shepard launch from the gantry. It was the 10, 9, 8, the countdown and so on. You saw the rocket uh, leave the pad, it flew to an altitude uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 60, 70 kilometers, and then shut down. You saw the capsule separate. Uh, it flew to an altitude of about 105 kilometers, and then it came back under parachute canopy, just like you know, we've seen from the Apollo and from the Dragon. So today had a much more rocket feel to it than Virgin Galactic, but both vehicles had basically the same goal, fly to more or less 100 kilometers, give fabulous views of the Earth, and give the passengers, and that's all they were, passengers, uh, a three or four minute burst of weightlessness. 
So this is the second flight of such a venture. Is one of these more significant than the other, or are these are these all ladders in the are these all rungs in the same ladder? I would say they were identical. Both companies, both Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, are in this for the commercial aspects, being able to deliver payloads to uh, the suborbital environment. Uh, and so we're talking about NASA, the European Space Agency, various commercial entities, as well as being able to take space tourists, you and me, on a fairly gentle ride to, as I say, 100 kilometers and give us that feeling of weightlessness. I, I view both flights similarly as stepping stones to the future. Yeah, they're pricey at the moment for you and me, not so much for the researchers. This is actually a cheap ride to that environment, much cheaper than going into orbit. But you'll see those prices come down as well in the not so distant future. All right. Uh, other side of this discussion, and you've been all over media talking about this, uh, and, and 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 of course the other side of this. And I've got an email in front of me. We just witnessed two wealthy tycoons jetting up to the stars, costing billions for science. It takes fuel to get to those heights. No talk of what this is going to cause to our environment. Climate change uh, can be mostly blamed on science. We have money for science. We don't have money for famine. We've been having these discussions since I've been on the planet. Let alone uh, humankind has been on the planet. Uh, are these discussions any different than we had when we were having discussions uh, uh, around the Earth being flat around? <laughs> wow. Uh, gee, that, 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 that's a long conversation, Scott. Um, I, I, I guess, you know... For what the are the advantages, of, I guess, Paul? What are the advantages to you and me for this? Yeah, I mean, whenever we go into a new venture, humanity tends not to pay a lot of attention to the, the, the fallout, shall we say. You know, when you go into space, when you cross the oceans, when you drive cars, there are issues that we need to be aware of. And we have not been very good at grappling with those. And the space environment is no different. We've spoken about space junk before. But take out the space environment, and you're talking about taking out weather satellites. You're talking about taking out GPS satellites, search and rescue operations, the ability to monitor the planet uh, for, for, for dangers, and that includes crop dangers and, and earth management. So, you know, the space environment is very important to us, and that's not going away. And what has happened today and what happened on the 11th is just giving us greater access to the space environment in a more cost-effective manner. So it's not going away. You need to be able to embrace it and to be able to make sure that we handle it properly. Um, you know, Blue Origin, by the way, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, pollution, because that's one of the implications of, of that uh, memo, burns hydrogen and oxygen and it expels water vapor. So, I mean, it's actually a very uh, environmentally friendly type of launch in contrast, for example, uh, to the uh, Falcon 9 launches, which is a little bit more uh, deleterious to the atmosphere. We need to be able to have those conversations, but the conversation gets had in how we resolve the issues and use it for the benefit of society going forward in the end we can't stop exploring can we paul i don't think so i think it's part of our genes i think it's hardwired into our dna every single human being who has ever been born over the thousands and thousands of years of recorded history has wanted to know what's over the horizon that's not going to change. The horizon has gotten a little larger and the real estate that we can explore has gotten much more. But no, I, I would not want to see us confined to this planet. I think there is too much to be gained by traversing the space environment and looking back in perspective as to you know, where we live.
Some may, some critics of this, and uh, obviously I'm a supporter. Otherwise, that's why I have you on as often as we do. Um, uh, some will say, "Well, this is just billionaires. This is not NASA." How how does NASA feel about this? NASA, uh, you know, N- NASA has had uh, mixed feelings. They did not want, for example, space tourists on the International Space Station in the early going, in the first few years when the Russian Space Federation was flying tourists to the International Space Station, they wouldn't let them in the U.S. component. That has now changed, and I think that's a sign of the times. The reality is space tourism and people going into space is a part of modern life. The ability for SpaceX and other organizations to be able to lead the charge and bring down the cost of taking kilograms of material into orbit. NASA wasn't going that direction. You and I would never have flown into orbit on a NASA vehicle. Uh, The commercialization of space through SpaceX, through Blue Origin, uh, through Virgin Galactic, I think has been a good thing for you and me. NASA is not being taken out of the equation. They are partnering with the commercial enterprise. And between them, I think we will see far more access, ready access for science as well as people in the space environment. All right, let's talk about the people who went up. Obviously, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, head of Amazon, his brother, and then uh, Wally Funk, uh, and I'll get you to explain her history in a sec, and as well as a uh, young man from the Netherlands. Uh, let's talk about the, uh, the woman who went up and her significance to the space program. Well, yeah, Wally, this this has been a long time coming. As I think you mentioned, uh, she was part of the Mercury 13. Everybody remembers the Mercury 7, the right stuff. Uh, Back in the early 60s, NASA basically was only allowed to fly men into space. But it didn't stop them checking out the characteristics, you know, from a flight perspective, of women being astronauts. And the Mercury 13 basically did every bit as well on the ground as the Mercury 7 astronauts, and that included uh, uh, um, Willie Funk. So they could have flown a Mercury capsule in 1961, but the politics of the day said, no, you're not going to do it. Uh, Of course, we now know that women are every bit as capable of flying spacecraft as are men. And, you know, I think it was a very generous gesture by Jeff Bezos to turn to Wally, one of those original 13 women, and say, okay, we're going, you're coming along. Uh, you know, she wasn't commanding the capsule, but she had a grand time. And 60 years after she proved her ability to do this, she was given that opportunity to fly into space. I think it was a very classy move by uh, Jeff Bezos. How hard would that be on an 82-year-old body? The acceleration that um, the Blue Origin vehicle uh, sustains is topping out at about three Gs, so three gravitational accelerations. That's pretty modest. You and I can do that. As long as we are in reasonably fit condition, three Gs is not going to bother you, especially for two to three minutes. And that's all it was. Uh, She's in great shape. There's no question. She has been a pilot all her life. She is physically fit. And just like John Glenn back 20 years ago when he flew the space shuttle, no real issues as long as you are physically fit. So she, you could tell she walked onto that vehicle this morning. You could hear her excitement when she was in zero G. You saw her walk off. There were no issues whatsoever. So that just goes to show that age is not a barrier as long as you look after yourself. And talk about the young man from the Netherlands who went up and the advantages of having a young person up there. Well, again, marketing-wise, because that's in a sense what was going on here, Oliver Damon, 18-year-old, he's about to go into university to study physics. That's good, like that. Uh, You know, it, it was bracketing 
the people who Blue Origin and everybody else wants to be able to fly into orbit. He represents the young generation, exciting people as they are going into university to excel in the various STEM uh, subjects, you know, physics, maths, uh, science, engineering. That's where the future lies. You get them excited and truly the sky is the limit. And so taking up Oliver today was a great gesture. Okay, yeah, his dad paid for the ticket. Understood, not a problem. Uh, but he was a young man. And again, you know, he was a pilot, as was uh, Wally. And they showed that you know, as long as you're physically fit, you can really enjoy this experience. Is there a downside of this, Paul? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's the development of a technology. And, uh, you know, I am a big fan, obviously, of that type of development, to be able to take anything into orbit at a lower price. I mean, it, it used to cost tens of thousands of dollars per kilogram. We're now down into thousands of dollars per kilogram. I'd like to see that come down to hundreds of dollars per kilogram. And then, you know, the ability for us to utilize the space environment for research, for technology, as well as for pleasure will really be on for everybody. So let's go back a couple of years, Paul. If you were that uh, young man uh, heading into a university to study physics, would you have jumped on board? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, I look forward to the opportunity of watching my grandchildren do this. I, I don't think that opportunity is going to come my way. I don't have a quarter of a million dollars lying around that I can dispose of. But that price, I bet within 10 years, will be 10%. And so, you have know, a $25,000 ticket to low Earth orbit, I expect my grandkids to be able to do it. And I, I want to watch them and enjoy it in the process. So what happens now, Paul? Where do we go from here? You're going to see more and more of these types of flights. Both companies have got uh, queues of people who want to fly. Uh, there are commercial contracts that are going to fly. So you're going to see Virgin Galactic and you're going to see Blue Origin flying to the edge of space more frequently. In October, you're going to see uh, SpaceX fly their Inspiration4 flight for tourists, shall we say, who will go into Earth orbit for four days or thereabouts. Uh, that will be a much longer and a more expensive trip. But again, it's the beginning of more of these sorts of flights. There are people talking about space hotels. They've been talking about it for a long time now. But now we've got three differing vendors who are developing the space technology to be able to take hotels into low Earth orbit. So you're going to see a lot more people in orbit. We're going to have to have the conversation about what qualifies as an astronaut. Mm. You know, people who fly with NASA and the European Space Agency, they're going to be called professional astronauts, I suspect. What do we call you and me when we fly into orbit? Amateur astronauts? I don't know. I don't know what the technology, the terminology is going to be, but that'll be the next conversation. It's already started. You know, how high do you have to fly at the moment to be called an astronaut? Is it mm. just a height issue uh, above the surface of the Earth to be called an astronaut? And so on. So there's a whole interesting debate that we're going to be having over the next few years, but you're going to see more and more people flying into orbit in the very near future. Paul Delaney with us, professor of astronomy, York University. As always, Paul, thanks so much for the time. Enjoy the day. I will indeed, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You can send us an note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. You know, uh, I guess I'm an old guy. Uh, you know, I'm in my uh, late 50s now. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I'm just, uh, it's amazing on social media. 
uh, you know, I'm starting to see all these messages because I guess it's hip to say this. Um, you know, uh, look at all these billionaires jetting up into space and, you know, the world is burning and, and people are starving. And it's like, you know, my first reaction is, to, is how old are you people? Um, you know, and I shouldn't be so insultive. Um, but we've been having these discussions as long as humankind is uh, been spinning around on the earth. You know, whether it's the automobile, whether it's the Internet, whether it's electricity, uh, whatever, the horseless carriage, all of this stuff called progress has always scared the bejeebers out of us. But it also ignites a flame under those who are passionate about it. And that is where discovery comes from. That is where advancement comes from. You know, one person said, well, what about the climate change and the problems of space shooting all these rockets up there? I know my mother used to say that. And, you know, as Paul Delaney uh, pointed out, the only thing this rocket gives off is, is steam. It, it's, it's a combination of different fuels, which, of course, is an experiment onto its own. So there's one angle right there that we're learning from. So, um, you know, I, I'm amazed because I guess it's just fashionable to be like this. I guess it's just fashionable you know, that we've seen this all during the pandemic. You're either on this side of an argument or you're on that side. There's no middle ground anymore. There's no agreeing to disagree or, or any of that. But, you know, my feeling, and obviously you know this because I have Paul Delaney from York University on all the time, uh, this to me is what it's all about. It's discovery. It's what's beyond the next uh, mountain, the next horizon, whatever. Uh, I would rather look forward because we will always have these issues that people are talking about. That is life. Um, but if no one moves forward, we all get left behind. So I, I, I'm not sure, you know, what crawling up into a little ball and, 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 and going into the corner, I'm not sure what that does. Um, and, you know, back in the 80s, we were talking about feeding the world and doing this and doing that and whatever. These are ongoing issues. These aren't issues that are solved with a flick of a switch or the lighting of a rocket. Uh, and, and they're two very, very, very different issues. Um, so, uh, you know, thinking, you know, you know, uh, crapping on those who have the, the, the wealth and the knowledge to do such activity, uh, to me is counterproductive to humankind. It really is. And, um, I don't know what it is lately that we've got into this headspace that, uh, you know, we've got to help solve all of the problems before we can move forward. And we can do it in unison, and that's what we've been doing since um, I think the world started spinning and human beings were on it. All right, let's move on, and uh, feel free to offer uh, your opinion on all of this. Uh, love to hear from you. Uh, you know, some people give their money away. Some people use their money for the advancement of society. Either way, you're helping from where I sit. Anyway, uh, we heard yesterday Canada will be reopening its borders to U.S. citizens in the coming months. This news come, uh, comes along with the word that we have surpassed the U.S. in vaccine rollout. Uh, obviously, they're having some issues with hesitancy down there. Once we got the supply, uh, we are getting her done, per se. Uh, meanwhile, we are seeing rising tensions between those who have received two doses and those who uh, obviously have decided not to get one. To talk about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Rodney Rohde, professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions with Texas State University and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
Hey, Scott, good morning. Hope hope you're doing well, and I loved your uh, entry there for me regarding progress in mankind. It's, it is interesting times, isn't it? It really is, and uh, that's a whole other discussion, Rodney, and maybe we'll come full really circle is. to that one. Uh, but let, let, let's go on. Uh, obviously, what, what, uh, what raised my attention to this issue uh, regarding border uh, openings was uh, when it was announced that uh, Canada would be uh, opening its border to those in the U.S. in August 9th, and then again internationally September 7th. Oh, many just thought it was a reciprocating thing, that, that, that it was open both ways. Why is the border, or why would you... Uh, open one side but not the other is this not something they are uh, we all thought they were working on together yeah you know in all of my understanding of it i was looking around this morning and last night in regard to these questions and it appears that i mean that the statement from the government in the u.s area at least is that they are in those discussions with the uk and with canada and their health experts are doing those types of discussions so i don't know if there's any real data out there that shows exactly what the u.s is going to do I mean, personally, I hope that we look at that closely. And, you know, I think part of it is, and what's so unique, and and I'm really excited about Canada doing this, is their uh, stance on proof of vaccination and having a molecular test, I think it's 72 hours before going in. And so they're doing all the right things with respect to precautions. And, I, you know, again, professionally and personally, I don't see why the U.S. can't do that uh, as, as a way to kind of follow that back into our country. We'll see. You know, I don't know if there's a reason they're hesitating on that or not, but certainly I think if you follow those public health guidelines strictly and closely, then you can do it safely. It's certainly a little different if you're talking about countries that are in full-blown uh, pandemic and you may not have ways to to regulate vaccination proof, you know, and you get into all that all of those issues around what's fake and what's not and things like that. But I think our relationship between Canada and the U.S., I see no reason why we couldn't move forward on that in the coming weeks and months. Uh, when citizens hear we are in discussions, uh, it sort of makes you uh, have the feeling that everybody's on the same page. Was it naive to think that if Canada was opening up theirs, that the U.S. would be opening up uh, their uh, borders? Uh, do you find it odd that one is, one is not? And I mean, obviously, you're yeah, not in Canada, I, so you can't weigh in on the politics here. But it just seems odd that they wouldn't have arrived at this decision at the same time. Yeah, I, I really don't know why that's occurring. You think that if anything... Uh, the teams would have gotten together, and this would have been a you know an interesting joint announcement. So I'm not sure if there just wasn't the communication along that lines, or if the Canada government decided you know they were moving forward. But certainly, I hope we move into that realm in the coming weeks because you know again, if you're if you're looking at it from a public health standpoint and from a precautionary standpoint, I think between our two countries and other countries that have shown the ability to start reaching, you know, at least 50, 60 percent, sometimes higher vaccination regions, then you can start doing these sorts of things carefully and and, and watching what's coming in and out. Uh, so we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. I hope the U.S. responds uh, within, you know, weeks at least to this announcement. It seemed that uh, Canada was being more um, uh, protective of this than what the United States was. At least that's the way we're feeling it here. And yet this would would say that the it is the opposite. Yes. Uh, this would say yes. it's mean, the exact opposite. Absolutely. I mean, it seems like all along, right, that, that, that that was the case. But this is definitely a little bit of a flip in the sense that Canada has kind of moved forward on this and... And perhaps, again, I, I just don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Perhaps they move forward 
you know, and the communication wasn't there because it certainly is a little different, you know, than what we've been seeing between our two countries in regards to precautions. Um, is this a uh, does this point to how concerned the U.S. is with variants? Um, what is the concern in the U.S. today? Yeah, I think I mean, I think that's the leading story. Right. So I'm actually working on a story right now about uh, the vaccination and unvaccinated populations within the U.S. And then in the middle of that is this new Delta variant. So I think if anything, if you kind of try to to try to hypothesize about what's going on here is that the U.S. is really being careful with respect to what they're seeing in those two populations and wanting to kind of be careful regarding, you know, any other problematic variants that might be emerging out there and, and just trying to do everything they can to kind of guard against that. At the end of the day, Scott, I mean, and, and as a virologist and a public health professional, I think all we can do at this point is to continue to urge people to get vaccinated. We are certainly seeing the data that is showing how important that is. Even with breakthrough infections in the vaccination, vaccinated population, we're seeing that even with Delta, it's really mild and, and not causing death or major severe illness. There's always exceptions, but it's the numbers are overwhelmingly in favor of vaccination. So between our two countries and, and elsewhere, that has to be the primary goal. And then um, and just keep moving towards that. And hopefully with mandates and maybe governmental or private uh, rules that start mandating vaccination, which which has happened, right? Even in the U.S., we have things like meningitis and other vaccines that you have to have to go to school or go to college or to work in healthcare. And I, I mean, personally, I think it's going to take time, you know, maybe months, if not a year for other entities to kind of step on that ledge and say, we're mandating it, you know, and maybe others will follow. And at some point moving down the road, this becomes less of a battle along the political lines. Ha, we'll see. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, maybe that will happen down the road. It seems like it is quite political, uh, certainly in the United States. Uh, that being sure. said, though, I believe Donald Trump has been vaccinated. Uh, does yep. anybody talk about that? <laughs> they ask those questions occasionally, but it doesn't seem to want to be a story. Yeah, I mean, I've always, there, there's interesting, uh, the people that push against that sometimes, and this is, you know, again, anecdotal sometimes, but it does appear that even those that push hard against it, that are political figures or even those with other conservative slants will sometimes be the first in line. And, and it's always an interesting conundrum to me, uh, both professionally and personally, that that kind of happens. You could kind of say the same thing about, you know, why aren't we getting India vaccinated quickly and Indonesia? I mean, it, it's definitely an issue of money and politics and, and willpower. And, and it's, you know, shame on everybody for not making this a more global effort with respect to getting shots in arms and vaccine equity out there. Uh, so uh, here we are, uh, Rodney, being Canada. Uh, mass vaccination really started rolling in around May. That's when things really torqued up here. Uh, now we're to the point where uh, I think 57% are fully vaccinated, over 75% at least with with one dose, between 75 and 80% um, with uh, one dose. What we're starting to see now, it's less about how can I get one, when and where can I get one. The question is, have you got a vaccine? How come you haven't right. had, uh, had your vaccine? Why are you not getting a vaccine? And we've seen this like uh, argument on social media between family members, uh, co-workers, uh, all kinds of scenarios where you you wouldn't expect i know in the united states they seem to characterize the extreme right 
that, or conservatism that doesn't uh, that doesn't want the vaccine. But here it is literally crossed every single uh, category. It would seem uh, there is just as much uh, reluctance on the left as there is in the right in certain scenarios and such. Uh, you said you were writing something on this. How do we deal with this moving forward when some are adamant about, hey, if you don't get the shot, then you're not coming with me? Right. Right. That is the ultimate question. Right. I mean, it's, and it's part of what I'm writing about. And, and you've seen these these articles by other people as well. And that's where, at least in the U.S., I, I'm definitely watching Canada because, you know, it's a little it, this is just an American's opinion. But looking at Canada, it seems like the people there are at least a little more um, progressive on vaccines. Now, maybe I'm wrong. But in the U.S., we've definitely reached, you know, we started a little bit earlier. So we started vaccinating in February, March, and it was just gangbusters. At the, we couldn't find places yeah. to get them. People were fighting in line to get them. Now you can get them anywhere you want. And we yeah. basically have kind of reached this stalling point where we're just down to, you know, maybe tens of thousands per day versus, you know, two million a day. So it's really frustrating. We've kind of hit that 50 plus percent nationally. But when you start looking at states and even, as you mentioned, down into regions or county level, town levels, there's some areas that are less than 30 percent. And that's where all the covid cases are happening. So I think it does cross family lines. I've seen that within my own family. I've seen that within other friends and family members. So I don't know if it's, you know, generally speaking, the U.S. kind of you can talk about conservative and, and liberal kind of being split over this. But there are pockets uh, within society even here that are showing that. Personally, again, and I think other professionals, you know, probably would agree with this. It's really going to come down to now that for all of us to do our part to try to educate and talk and tell stories and visit with people that are a little hesitant. I think we can still reach those that are hesitant that may be waiting to see, you know, is this going to be safe over, you know, several months time? And then maybe now I'll get it versus just the hardcore um, and and the hardcore against it are, are very difficult to deal with, you know, whether it's vaccination or other topics. So sometimes you have to try to reach those that are hesitant. And hopefully both countries can push up into the 70, 80 percentile. And that's where we really need to be to kind of hit that herd immunity level. The higher, the better. But I'm hoping we at least get into the 70 and 80 percentile. It's going to be difficult. I think it's going to be a month to month, week to week battle where we're trying to get as many people on board as possible. What do you think the next six months will look like for the U.S.? I think we are going to kind of end, end the summer and move into the fall and winter season. And I think we're going to see Delta um, surging in what I'm calling micro pandemics and little county to county outbreaks where you have places like Missouri and Texas and Mississippi and Arkansas uh, down in the southern or parts of the Midwest, where you're going to see surges uh, in those unvaccinated populations. And I think we're going to see some in the vaccinated populations. I'm not saying that, but the vaccinated populations are showing very little illness, uh, cold-like symptoms uh, to date. That's what we're showing. And I don't see, I don't think we're going to see the same types of surges or deaths that we saw last year uh, in the U.S. We We may see that, obviously, in other countries and areas that aren't is fully vaccinated, but that's my, that's kind of my crystal ball right now is that we're going to see more micro outbreaks at the county and town level in areas that have not, you know, stepped up and got those vaccinations in their arms. 
What about uh, back to school come September and kids under 12? Obviously, vaccines have not been approved for their use yet. Your thoughts right. on those unvaccinated kids uh, heading back to school? And when will yeah. when do you think we'll see that approval? Yeah, very challenging question there. Uh, I did see yesterday that the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out with their statement. And they're basically asking uh, 12 and under to wear masks. Uh, of course, this is going to come down to uh, local and state and county, you know, reactions around that. Will will they implement that, uh, or will they leave it up to the school by school by school? Uh, and right now, my gut feeling tells me that it's going to be almost a local decision. Um, and you know, again, I'm preaching this. Many of my colleagues are a personal decision, and we hope that families that have those young children under 12, I would even say any kid, right? So I'm going back to teach. I've been teaching since this thing started. Hmm. And in our program at the college level, which is usually 18 and older, I'm going to be wearing a mask into my classroom because I'm going to have 20 or more students in there at a time, if not more. Uh, I tell people, if I don't know the situation, if I don't know the vaccination status, if I'm in a room that is, you know, a more of a crowded situation and I'm worried about the ventilation, I'm wearing my mask and I'm fully vaccinated. So trying to be an example and trying to encourage people to be that example um, as we move forward. But it's going to be challenging, I think, for K through 12 teachers and staff and students because you're going to see a cross section of all society kind of doing probably what they want to do since the CDC lifted that mask mandate. So that's where we are in the states. It's just kind of it's kind of up in the air, and personal responsibility is going to have to kick in. And many are saying that we can just expect a slight uptick in right. uh, in cases uh, in the fall, as we do w- whenever the kids return back to school. Right, right. I think, in fact, that's what we're doing at our university. We're already trying to uh, tell that story over the summer because we're seeing it already kind of rise a little bit, and we want people to be prepared that we are going to see a rise in numbers, you know, a certain percentage, and that we shouldn't be surprised by that because of, you know, the mask not being implemented as much. Uh, Many people are coming back in in more crowded situations because they're lifting some of that that density or capacity ruling in classrooms and things like that. So I think we absolutely will see a rise in those numbers. So it's just going to be something to expect and then to respond to that as needed. Uh, but you're not as concerned as past waves of this? No, not in the United States. Not. I don't think we will see what we saw last year. I'm not a, an alarmist right now. I know you're seeing some articles about Delta just going crazy uh, in certain areas. I'm more of the, the belief that it might happen in local, uh, regional, county-level types of things where local officials are going to have to kind of respond to that, whether it's masks or you know vaccine campaigns. or I think we'll see you know, situations where schools may have to stop, you know, in in areas that it it does that. I just don't think you're going to see the widespread uh, problems that we saw last, you know, last spring and and, uh, late fall. Dr. Rodney Rohde with us, professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University. Rodney, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. Here is today's Daily Commentary. It's pretty safe to say that if it wasn't for the Green Party and movements like theirs, 
the environment may not be as front and center as it has become today in the global political discussion, especially around climate change. But has the Green Party, at least federally, become redundant in Canada? We've got the message, green is good, but what else can you do? Every political party realizes that now and has some sort of green position. How do the Greens grow from an extreme movement to a credible political party with electable candidates? Can anyone present a Green Party position on any issue other than the environment? As important as the environment is to Canadians and the rest of the world, it is not the only pressing issue, and governing requires more depth than a one-trick pony. Green Party leader Annemi Paul was almost ousted as her party leader on an issue that had nothing to do with climate change. More proof there seems to be only one ideology they can all agree on, and the rest of their political policy is anybody's guess. Fashionable extremism will only take you so far in an election campaign. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've certainly been uh, watching over the last uh, couple of weeks about the wildfires in British Columbia and uh, the town of Linton and, and my goodness, what uh, they have been through uh, out there. Uh, but it was interesting. Over the weekend, uh, I'm sitting out with my wife and I said, do you smell smoke? No, I don't smell smoke. And even yesterday, do you smell smoke? No, I don't smell smoke. And I don't know. You know, I did spend some time in Alberta uh, many years ago, and and maybe I remember smelling it from out there, or you know, lots of times if you go to an island, they're clear cutting stuff or or doing agricultural burning or what have you. Uh, but yeah, a, a definite smell of forest fire in the air uh and obviously the haze is a clue but also the color of the sun uh we've certainly heard about the fires out in bc but what is going on within our own province let's bring in david martell professor co-leader of the fire management systems laboratory and in the facility of forestry university of toronto and is with us now david thanks for the time i hope you're doing well thank you scott and you too so where is uh, the smoke that we are experiencing in southern Ontario? And I understand it's supposed to dissipate today as, uh, as rain moves into the area. But where is the smoke that we're experiencing coming from? So I haven't looked at the actual smoke maps. There are maps available. But my understanding is that the smoke that we're experiencing in southern Ontario and have been starting at least yesterday is coming from fires in northwestern Ontario. So we're talking about areas up. Uh, Kenora, Red Lake, uh, Dryden area, up up near the Manitoba border. How does this season compare to past? Uh, I don't have the figures right in front of me, but it's uh, it's very challenging. Uh, the, 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 when I when I last looked, uh, Ontario had they were reporting uh, 107 active fires in what they call the Northwest region. And that's well above normal. Uh, and uh, there's a there's an enormous amount of area uh, burned and burning. And uh, I don't have those figures at hand, but uh, I believe the area that's burned and is burn- being burned is 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 well above the average for for this time of year, and and for recent years. And what about precipitation in northern Ontario? Obviously, it's been a a very wet few weeks for us in southern Ontario. Have they been experiencing the same thing up there, or is it more the dry conditions like we're seeing out west? 
No, it's much more like the dry conditions out west. Uh, we in the fire area work with something called the Canadian Forest Fire Danger Rating System that essentially monitors and indicates how dry the forest is. And, and if you look, and, and there are publicly available maps of that, and if you look at those maps, you'll see that there, it's been very dry and extreme drying conditions in, in, in northwestern Ontario, uh, not so much in northeastern Ontario, uh, because there's been more precipitation, and uh, we've been getting a fair amount of precipitation. So, so, so the, the the prolonged drying that's that's uh, driving these fires is is primarily focused in northwestern Ontario. And the cause of these is it is it human interaction or is it from lightning strike? Once again, I don't have those figures in front of me, but my understanding from from looking at earlier. Uh, media reports uh, is is a lot of these fires are lightning fires and yeah. and uh, I don't know what proportion of this particular one uh, typically sort of an average across Canada is is, is roughly sixty percent of the fires that occur are caused by people and forty percent by lightning but but what's going on in northwestern Ontario? Right now, I'm. I believe I'm pretty certain is is a predominance of of lightning caused fires. Is there anything we can do to be, be uh, better prepared for these? Is there something we can do as far as forestry management to to help with this? Well, uh, I, the answer is we have to be prepared to fight these fires, which 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 we are. Uh, so, so Ontario has a has a pretty good fire management organization. It's got a well deserved international reputation for excellence. Uh, they're dealing with the fires. They're they're dealing with the cards that nature has given them. Uh, but basically, what you have to do is you is you have to have uh, a good fire organization to deal with this. So it depends on how much detail you want to go into it. Basically, we, we you know the basic principles of fire management are both simple and complex. Uh, you need a good prevention system. So, so uh, we obviously can't prevent lightning caused fires, but we can prevent, take measures to prevent uh, human caused fires. And and uh, the way we do that is 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 the government uh, first of all has public education programs to try to reduce, you know, encourage people not to do foolish things, uh, and not not uh, cause fires by accident. Uh, they also have uh, work regulations that restrict industrial operations when the fire hazard gets high. So, so when the fire hazard gets high, there are restrictions on on work that can be done by forest companies and other industrial companies. So, so, so you need a good prevention program, and 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 we we do have a good prevention program in Ontario. Then, then you need a detection program because basically. Uh, your, your listeners would understand it's easier to contain a, a, a small fire than it is to contain a large fire. So, so you need a good detection system that's going to make it possible for you to find fires as small as possible. Uh, and and in some parts of the world, they use towers. We used to use towers in, in Ontario. We now, basically since the mid-70s, have focused organized detection as, as aerial detection patrols. So so the, the Ministry of Natural Resources fire people essentially have a fleet of, of 
of uh, aerial detection patrol aircraft and uh, and the pilots and the detection observers and and, and every day when when there's when they believe they're they, they they predict when and where they think fires may be burning undetected and they will dispatch those detection aircraft to fly routes to search for them uh, once you find them then you have to respond to them uh, so there's basically a two-stage process the first is we describe it as initial attack. So when a fire is, is first reported, uh, the duty officer or, or a person in the more local to the area sector, we call it a sector response officer, has to decide what resources to send to that fire. So they're going to be on various stages of alert, and, and you can you, it's pretty much for, take for granted that under these conditions, most of the resources are going to be on what's called red alert, so they have quick getaway. So they're going to typically dispatch a couple of air tankers, uh, an air attack officer in, in, in another aircraft that manages those, and they will dispatch uh, firefighters or fire rangers, we call them in Ontario, and they'll typically go by helicopter uh, to get there quickly unless it's they can quickly get there by, by truck. Uh, they contain... Uh, the, I don't have the, once again, I don't have the fingers at, figures at hand, but typically in the province of Ontario, they, they contain roughly 95% of the fires that are, that are reported at a small size. The ones that get away, then they, then they, they sort of ramp it up. And, and, and it could be basically that the crews that went there for initial attack are going to stay longer and, and contain and extinguish the fire. But every once in a while, you get a very large fire, and there are a number of them burning. And, and they put in what's called an incident management team. And that incident management team is a group of managers, typically 18 managers, who's, who, who have other jobs during the regular days. But once they're on an incident management team and they're dispatched to a fire, their job is to deal with that fire. Uh, and, and, and they will handle things like the planning, the suppression, the logistics, and so on. And, you know, they, they, that can become a big operation. It could be, you know, 50, could be as many as 300, 500 firefighters, people on, on one of those large fires. Do we need, do we have enough? Do we need more equipment for this, for this threat? Do we need more personnel or is this area just too big to cover? Well, you'd have to, you know, that's a question you'd have to ask them. I mean, I'm an academic researcher uh, I study fire management systems. I develop models. I study these things. But the question is, do they have do they have enough? You'd, you'd have to ask them. Uh, one of the things that one important thing that people are probably not aware of uh, is 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 uh, we're not alone, uh, and and you see signs of that in the media coverage. So so for example. When when they are having fire problems in northwestern Ontario, as they are now, and and things are not as critical in northeastern Ontario, then you're going to see resources are going to move from northeastern Ontario to northwestern Ontario. Mm-hmm. So so no, no organization can afford to sort of staff up to the to the kinds of of needs that are going on right now. So, so basically you'll see resources move from, from Northeastern Ontario, probably in this case, I'm sure there are fire firefighters and others gone, have gone from Northeastern Ontario to Northwest, but then there comes a point where 
even within Ontario, there's a not, not necessarily enough resources to deal with the current situation. So then you go outside of Ontario to your friends and, and other provinces. So fortunately, we have something called the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre in Winnipeg. And, and its primary mandate is to facilitate sharing between fire management organizations. So so you've seen uh, press coverage that says there are firefighters and aircraft from Quebec, uh, Wisconsin, uh, New Brunswick, Newfoundland. I'm sure I've missed some. Uh, and and there's also been a large contingent of firefighters come from from Mexico. So so eventually you get to a point, and you can see what's going on now is there's a lot of resources on fires in BC. There's a lot in Ontario, and people are have haven't paid much attention. But there's a lot of fire in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. So eventually you reach a point where, given the current elevated situation, you don't have enough resources in Ontario. So you go outside and, and firefighters and others have been brought in from Australia, as, as is the case this year from Mexico, uh, Canadian, and, and things go both ways. So Canadian fire people have gone to parts of the United States, they've gone to Australia. So you, you, you never, you never, you, you never want to try to staff up to deal with the worst situation but you have to develop a structure to deal with it. And, and the way we deal with it is, is resource sharing. And, and that functions quite well in Canada. Um, I heard a report, and again, you know, there's lots of information on this. Not sure how much of it is as accurate as, as it could be. But is there something we can learn here from Indigenous communities? Uh, many have said that they would do their own controlled burning, uh, whether it was clearing a, you know, a patch which uh, would eventually become a meadow to attract, you know, animal like caribou, or even controlled burning to, to protect forests and, and, and communities and such and now that's pretty much all a a a linked government issue is there something we can learn from the indigenous communities here yeah there's a great deal we can learn from the indigenous community uh indigenous people have been living and working with fire in this area you know in, in in canada for thousands of years uh they they have they have a great deal of knowledge and they have a great deal to offer uh you know, I, I think it's fair to say that that people, uh, I, I can only speak for fire researchers, you know, uh, I don't think most fire researchers, myself included, have paid enough attention to what they have to offer. Uh, and, and we recognize that, 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 that we should and we should start to do so. Uh, but yes, they, they certainly do have a great deal to offer. Do you see that changing in the future? Where you know we will gather that information. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's happening now. Uh, I, I mean, we, we we now typically in the past we had fire researchers that were focused on things like fire behavior, and 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 uh, in my case, fire management systems and fire ecology. There's a whole, you know, one of the one of the biggest changes is a whole new group of of researchers. You know, academics like labels, but we call them. People that focus on the human dimension of the wildland wildland fire, and and many of them, uh, the, their, their research mandate, their their mission is essentially to to capture some of that expertise and to develop ways of of bringing it into the 
into the to the rest of the to the community and 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 provinces. You know, if you talk to fire managers in provinces, they, they know, and they're all they're they're all. I can't speak to what they're doing. You'd have to talk to them, but 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 most of the provincial fire management organizations recognize. Um, well, first of all, they they've had indigenous people in their fire organizations, you know, for for a long long time. But but uh, there, if you talk to them, you'd probably find that they they recognize just as us researchers is that that they can probably be doing more than they did in the past. Uh, but you'd have to speak to them. Can, can you give us an example? Academics. Can you give us an example of what we may learn from from those on the ground there? You'd best talk to them. Like I said, as as an academic researcher, I haven't paid enough attention, so. It's not appropriate for me to sit down and say, "Well, here's what we might learn." That you know, you want to talk to them and and find out what they have to offer, and hopefully, when you do that, I'll be aware of it and I can listen. Where where do you see this issue going? It seems that it 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 gets worse every year, or maybe I'm wrong there. Uh, Which uh, issues? Uh, the, the, just forest fires in general in in uh, in Canada. We certainly saw what happened in, in British Columbia and such. I, I, is this something we have to take a lot more seriously? Uh, yeah, we certainly do. Uh, uh, you know, uh, people have been talking about climate change. Fortunately, some of my uh, people in in the fire research community, particularly climatologists. Have been talking about climate change and the impact of fire, and uh, you know, people people that study these things have been developing climatological models, looking at what the what the climate change people are telling us, and essentially taking that information about climate change and saying, okay, what does this mean in terms of of fire regimes in the future? So what we know is this: we know that we're going to have more variability in, in, in fire. Uh, we know that there's going to be hotter, drier conditions, and we know there's going to be more fires and there's going to be bigger fires. For example, uh, a couple of my colleagues and I did a study of, of the length of the fire season. And, and the length of the fire season in Ontario, we only studied Ontario and Alberta, but the length of the fire season in Ontario and Alberta has been increasing. And, and that's that's a result of climate change. And, and there's a lot more worse things going on. And, the, and if you look at, the, in particular, the, the, the situation that they've been dealing with in, in British Columbia, uh, typically the fire season in British Columbia doesn't get ramp, ramped up to this level of severity until late July and, and into August. So it's obviously started earlier. So the, you know, this is, you know, this is, being driven by climate change and it's not going to get any better. So, you know, uh, we've got to start dealing with climate change and, and try to mitigate it to some extent, but that's, you know, not simple, but, but, uh, not a surprise. I mean, what's happening now, you can look at papers that were published years ago that warned of this and, you know, what we see happening, we, we know, is, is being driven by climate change, and it's going to get worse. David Martell with us, co-leader of the Fire Management Systems Laboratory in the Faculty of Forestry, University of Toronto, uh, Ontario, experiencing smoke in southern Ontario from the fires in northern Ontario. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
Thank you, and uh, thanks for having me. Are you getting excited about the Olympics? Huh? The Olympics. <laughs> uh, the official start of the Tokyo Olympics. There you go. That, that, that's just from the staff, because there's no one in the stands. Uh, obviously, the Tokyo Olympics already postponed. Now uh, there's chatter whether uh, it'll get to the finish line this time. The official start of the Tokyo Olympics only days away. Positive tests out there are raising concerns of those who are already on the edge about the idea of the event taking place during a pandemic. And some chatter now that it's still, at this late date, could be uh, canceled. Let's bring in Sean Fitzgerald, senior national writer with The Athletic and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. So a news clip this morning, something about how there is still a chance that this could be canceled. What can you add to this story? There's no chance. <laughs> There's no chance. Uh, it was a little bizarre. How did this start this morning? Well, how did I mean, this happen? I mean, you know, some context here is that, you know, some of the most recent data suggests that you know, upwards of 85% of people in Japan do not want these games hosted this year. The fact is that the games are being imposed rather than hosted. Um, you know, the, 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 the Japanese official did come out uh, earlier today and say, you know, didn't say that, you know, there's a chance it could still be canceled, but said discussions are ongoing, I think, between the five stakeholders that are involved and, and that talks are ongoing. And, and should there be a spike, there would be further discussion. But the fact of the matter is that, this really is sort of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, driving the bus, which is interesting, and it could be a conversation in its own right, that you know, the IOC wields this enormous power, even though it doesn't really do anything other than lend its name to the Olympic movement. So the chances of this thing actually getting cancelled at this point are slim to very, very none. Uh, it's fascinating how the tone of the Olympics has changed over the decades. I remember, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be in Calgary uh, during the 88 Olympics. And, uh, you know, what an absolute buzz it was. Every city trying to get the Olympics after that. I remember coming back to Toronto and they were trying for the 96 games, I believe it was. And this was quite a medal of honor to get such a games. Now, of course, many are, are questioning the expense and, and whether being a host city is worth it uh, and such. And obviously sponsorship, a big part of this. Uh, everybody wanting to be the official car, the official uh, soft drink, the official what of the Olympics. Now we're hearing sponsors uh, such as Toyota, who, you know, n- normally if you if you uh, won this bid, you got to put the Olympic rings everywhere and use this in all of your ads and such. They're pulling away from that and don't want to mention uh, the fact that they're associated with the Olympics. Now, this is just in Japan. Your thoughts on the turn and the change of the sponsorships attitudes? Yeah, I mean, the whole concept of the Olympics and, and sort of what you touched on in the beginning is an interesting one. That, yeah, I mean, cities used to and still kind of did until very recently fall over themselves. I mean, in 2002, you know, there was, um, you know, the basically the bid scandal that broke around the Salt Lake City yeah. Olympics. Um, but what you've seen is this accumulation over time of these images of, of these places that are built, these palaces to sport that are never used again, um, you know, whether it be badminton courts in Greece that, you know, now collect dust or, or even in China from Beijing in 2008, um, these places that just don't get used, that were never needed in the first place and are never properly incorporated. I mean, even 2014 in Sochi in Russia, um, you know, it's, it's not exactly a bustling hub of amateur sport development in that part of the world right now in Sochi. So, yeah. It is a multi, multi-billion dollar endeavor um, that requires taxpayer resources that could be doing other things in the local communities. We haven't even touched on Brazil in 2016. Um, 
that are being diverted for what? For the glorification of amateur sport, sure. But it also touches on what we're also talking about, which is the money, the television money, the sponsorship. And that's where the IOC wields its power. That um, The IOC doesn't actually do much when it comes to uh, actually staging these games. It's, it's the local organizing committee. They, they build the stadiums. They sell the tickets. The IOC is basically licensing this stuff. It, it licenses the branding. It licenses the television contracts, from which it profits immensely. So, yeah. I mean, assorting, you know, your brand, associating your brand with the Olympics this time around, um, it is interesting that, you know, in Japan, how can you have uh, an advertisement saying, look, we're so proudly associated with these five rings, these, this Olympic brand, when 85% of your potential customers don't want the thing there. So, yeah, I mean, Toyota's a giant multinational, so, you know, some of its advertising that it had been planning to run in Japan will run in North America, and we'll very likely see it here in Canada as well. But, no, absolutely not. You, you cannot run ads like that in the host country. Not what does this do for future cities vying for the Olympics? I think it's a warning shot. And I think the warnings have been, I mean, it's like climate change, right? Like, we've been warned for a long, long time. We, we knew things were happening, and, you know, the action, it, it took something really, really bad for it to finally get traction. Um, we've known that the Olympics were really expensive. Um, we've known that, you know, without proper planning, they can have just, you know, generational overruns. I mean, I think Montreal just finished paying for Olympic Stadium within the last decade, right? And that was in 1976 that that bloody thing was held. So, yeah, I mean, it's really, really expensive. So I think what you're seeing now is fewer cities. Fewer cities are bidding because they realize that, you know, governments realize that money can be spent and should be spent elsewhere. And I think that the appetite that taxpayers might have for hosting these sorts of things is really small. So what you get is um, you get, might get a China, you might get a Russia, where there is that prestige of hosting this thing on the global stage, no matter the cost. Do you see the IOC making adjustments there? Because we've seen, you know, other cities that have held it saying, well, we've already got these facilities, we can update them. But it seems every time you have an Olympics, it's got to be a brand new shiny model. And, and they're, you know, we don't even talk about expense. Do you think the IOC is getting this message and and will redirect how it goes about awarding these games? I mean, it's, it's tough to tell because it's this giant international cabal. Um, but I think at some point it's going to have to. Um, that, that, you know, maybe even, I mean, FIFA for the World Cup is going to have to come to that same realization that just because you have this giant thing doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're going to force one country into building all of these stadiums, um, big and shiny, that they'll never really have a use for. Like, like in, in Brazil, they built a stadium in Manaus, like in the middle of the rainforest um, that is never going to be really properly used as it should, right? Like, that's just a waste. So, that seems very odd when you think about it, Sean, because whenever they're selling these games in North America, it's about building affordable housing, Athletes Village will become housing, this uh, this new pool will help the university, da 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 mm-hmm. there's always benefits, that's how they sell it here. But that in other parts of the world, that doesn't even seem to be uh, you know mentioned, let alone a priority. Well, I mean, the Pan American Games in, in Toronto and Hamilton, uh, I mean, and, you know, that's a, a reasonably good example. And I, I still remain skeptical about some of the long-term use of some of the facilities. But, I mean, you can't argue with the success of other ones. Now, again, Pan Am Games, and, you know, I was quite critical and still have a skeptical eye, but, you know, do we really need a velodrome in Milton? 
But, um, you know, the, the Olympic pool at the University of Toronto serves exactly what you just said. It, it, it helps an underserved community. And it's also become a place where, oh, by the way, we discover Alexiak, right? Like there are mm. benefits, but I think the scale is the question here, that the Olympic scale is just so much bigger than the Pan American Games that you really do have to do that cost-benefit analysis. And, and I would challenge a lot of people that, you know, if you're going to build from scratch and start all of these venues from scratch, that that analysis comes out in favor of hosting this thing. Uh, the re- the latest news out of uh, Japan, the U.S. gymnastics team has decided not to stay in the Olympic Village, but to rent hotel rooms. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of, of hosting a bubble environment that, like, you know, the NBA hosted a very successful bubble for its playoffs last year. The NHL had a successful bubble in, in Alberta and in Toronto. Um, but the Olympics isn't, you know, a couple of hundred uh, professional athletes. I mean, this is the largest, most complex quadrennial gathering a human can possibly endeavor. Um, thousands of people. I think that the Athletes Village, you know, has a capacity for something like 15,000 people, and they're trying to figure out a way of, well, maybe if we only go into the Athletes Village five days before and kick them out two days after, we can, we can avoid some of this. So it's impossible. I mean, there's going to be mingling. That's the whole point. Like, that's the whole point of the Olympics in spirit, if not in practice, is to bring people together, right? Like, that's what we celebrate, mm, bringing together yeah. the world. So when you design something to bring people together, it's awesome, except when there's a global pandemic. Yeah. So, yeah, like, it's, it's not going to be airtight. You talk about that experience. You know, I I remember being in Calgary and being in the media, being fortunate enough to have access to a common area in the athletes village. And it was just an incredible experience because literally people there from all over the world. I remember being on Calgary's LRT to go into a, a hockey game. And I think I was the only one on the train that spoke English. There was just people there from all over the place. It was really a truly uh, incredible experience. And with that element of it gone and just leaving the competition, which let's be honest, is the most important part. It still seems like only a half a games. And here's the big trade-off, right, Scott? Like, like here we are spending, I don't know how many minutes, just crapping all over the movement because of the business yeah. side of it and just how, how awful it is. But what you just touched on is why we all love the Olympics. Like, yeah. I love the Olympics. I love it. I will watch it 24 hours a day. I will, I will be CBC's greatest single most loyal viewer again for the next three weeks, right? Um, and to be there is exactly what you're talking about. It's that experience. It's that energy. It's that vibe. It's that coming yeah. together. And for the athletes, it's even more. I mean, <laughs> this might be a little early in the day to talk about this, but one of the great uh, quadrennial stories is, you know, how many condoms are available in the athletes' yeah. village and are yeah. they running out, right? Like, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a celebration of humanity. And the fact that that's stripped away just makes it sort of kind of feel like a grim spectacle heading into the opening ceremony this weekend. Yeah, it's bizarre. Uh, Ken, are you confident that they can keep the athletes safe? Will come out of this? I mean, I'm sure you're going to hear of cases. I mean, we're already hearing cases of of cases before it even starts. So I'm sure you're going to see something like that. But are you convinced, Sean, that they can keep the athletes safe through this? No, no, just because of the scope of this thing it's so broad, it's huge, it's it's its own city, it's it's multi moving parts, people coming in from all over the world to compete and you can't possibly keep track of people you can't possibly do enough contact tracing it's just too enormous um it's just a massive undertaking what do you think we're going to be talking about two weeks from now 
God, I hope we're talking about sports. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> the optimistic part of me says, I hope we're talking about the sports. I really, really do have concerns of, you know, what happens if there's a spread? What happens if, you know, you're talking about the U.S. gymnastic teams. What happens if Simone Biles, God forbid, is, you know, judged to be a close contact and for some reason can't compete? Like that's, that's, that's the, one of the biggest stars in the world at the height of her powers and might not be able to compete. Like those are the stories I hope we're not talking about, but I'm not super confident that they won't dominate the headlines. Sean Fitzgerald with us, senior national writer with The Athletic, the official start of the Tokyo Olympics only days away and still lots of concerns around this global pandemic. It'll be fascinating to watch. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You as well. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.